You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you. Well, it's great to be back for another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Paul Garner and Todd Wood. I am Paul Garner. And I am Todd Wood. And uh, we just want to remind uh, our viewers and listeners, if you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, just remember to hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, uh, tell your friends, uh, share and like our episodes. If you're listening on one of the regular podcast streaming platforms, uh, leave us a positive review. Uh, We really do appreciate all of that. Todd, um, I I don't know what you've been up to uh, in recent weeks, um, but I seem to have been inordinately busy with a new writing project, um, which I I can't say very much about at this point. You you know what it is. Um, I do, yes. But uh, (laughs) top secret stuff. Secret stuff. Yeah, we we can't say very much about it at this point, but it is consuming a huge amount of my time. Um, so I haven't had uh, much time for for other things. How about you? What what have you been? Yeah, up to pretty the much the same. Years? I've I've been uh, in, instead of you know writing specifically, I've been doing a lot of reading to prepare for writing, mm. and and running Core Academy and all that good stuff. But yeah, a lot of reading, a lot of learning about new things that I haven't really understood fully before. So it's been good to learn, but at the same time, I feel like I want to get back to actual output production right so it's good to be back yeah. here with you to talk about creation stuff so uh yeah yeah it's good stuff yeah and so it's actually quite a nice uh, opportunity for me to have a break from writing um yeah. and uh, we we've we've got a great topic today and uh, a, a a wonderful guest um I'll introduce our, our guest, I think, and then we'll, we'll talk about what, what the subject is for today. Our guest today is Dr. Jean Leitner. Um, Jean is someone I've known for a number of years. Uh, she has a degree in agriculture and a doctorate in veterinary medicine. Uh, Jean worked for just over three years as a veterinary medical officer for the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, before leaving to home educate her children. Uh, Jean has been uh, an integral part of the creation biology research community for for many years. That's kind of how our paths have crossed. And she's the author of many uh, journal articles and papers, particularly with a focus on genetics and adaptation, especially in mammals and birds. And uh, Jean is also, I understand now, the, the new vice president of the Creation Research Society. So congratulations to Jean for that. So Jean, uh, it is great to have you here with us. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure to join you. Thank you for asking. Well, we wanted uh, to invite you on, Jean, because so much of your uh, research has focused on the issue of created kinds, uh, baromenology. And we've been doing a, a series of episodes uh, where we look at discoveries in creationist research. And great discoveries, great discoveries, great discoveries. Let's make sure that's creationism. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, we we've sort of touched on baromenology in past episodes. Um, you know, we we've mentioned it a number of times. But we thought it would be good to to focus an entire episode on this subject, and who better to talk to about it 
than uh, than yourself. So uh, we're really delighted um, that you could you could join us today. Um, Jean, just tell us a, a bit uh, about the Creation Research Society first of all, because you know I mentioned there in the introduction that you you're now the new vice president. Um, you've been a board member, I think, for for some time. So ju just uh, tell our listeners about the work of the CRS. Yeah, we've been around for nearly 60 years, and uh, it was founded by um, the same people who founded uh, ICR, Henry Morris, and a number of others. Um, we exist to fund research and encourage research and publish research, and we're trying to build the creation model. And there's a lot of work to do in that in that regard, um, in all the different fields, you know, astronomy, biology, geology, paleontology. So I became interested um, in being involved just because I was fascinated by the world around me. I just wanted to understand how living things were related and how they changed. How do they adapt? Um, you know, what, what's really involved in the adaptation and things like that. So I got invited to be on the board and I've been on it uh, for over a decade, I think. And wow. um, and I enjoy the work there. So mm -hmm. that's great. And of course, uh, I, th I think we first met uh, at the summer meetings of the Creation Biology Society as well um, some years ago. So you've, you've sort of contributed there as well, which is great. Yeah. Uh, so we, we want to talk about created kinds, um, you know, we have sort of touched on this in, in past episodes. We've talked about landfowl baramins and pterosaur baramins and uh, we've also uh, done an episode or two about uh, human baraminology as well um but for this uh, you know for the sake of our listeners who perhaps are just joining us for, for this episode um what are we talking about when we talk about a baramin or a created kind just just kind of give us some of the history of the the baramin concept gene if you if you would yeah, if you go back to Genesis 1, when God created everything, he created plants and trees uh, according to their kinds. And then he created um, the creatures that fly and the creatures in the ocean according to their kinds and various broad groups of land animals according to their kinds. And then he made humans different from everything else in his image. Um, so the idea is, is that he told them to reproduce and fill the earth. And then after the flood, there was this what they call a bottleneck, where you greatly reduce the population of any particular type of organism. And they again had to reproduce and fill the earth. And that, that's a lot of adaptation that goes on. So as someone who wants to understand how things work in animals, the first thing I have to do is go back and say, okay, what's actually related? Um, I don't accept universal common ancestry. There's many reasons for me not to, but I do, I do accept limited common ancestry. And it's like, well, let's trace it back and let's see what's actually related. And then we can ask other questions that can give us more information about other things. Mm. So am I right in thinking then that the created kind is essentially a, a broad group? It's not equivalent to a species and that a, a, quite a considerable degree of diversity is possible within the created kinds. Is, is that kind of the concept here? Okay, yeah, it, initially when they were created, they were each an individual species, but yeah, they reproduced and filled the earth and they, a lot of variety came up. And so what we see today 
there's a lot of variation. And mm. my background's in agriculture, so I'd like to point out that, you know, I can look at dog breeds, and we have hundreds of dog breeds with an amazing amount of variety. Variety that's actually much more different than often between genera in the wild. Um, so we, that's been produced in hundreds of years. We have records of that. And there's thousands of cattle breeds, and that's been produced in thousands of years. And many of these cattle breeds are very locally adapted. And so you see, even in agriculture, that God gave um, creatures the ability to adapt and to undergo certain types of changes, not any change, but certain types of changes. There can be patterns in the changes that we see. Yeah. So, yes. So can you, can you speak to a little bit of the, the cattle breeds. I'm familiar with dog breeds. I think most of our audience knows about poodles and chihuahuas and Great Danes and so forth. But I have to say, I don't know much about cattle breeds. Could you give us some examples, maybe? Okay, so in the United States, um, if you work in agriculture, you're familiar with cattle breeds that are bred for meat. And, okay. you know, that'd be your Black Angus and your Hereford and uh -huh. Simmental, and there's a whole slew, you know, you can go on, I think, Oklahoma State, I think, has a web page that shows breeds of cattle. And then, on the other hand, you have your dairy breeds, like your Holstein, Holstein's a real common one, but there's Jersey and Guernsey and things like that. Huh. So, if you notice, the way the animals are built between just the beef breeds and the dairy breeds is very different. And that's one thing that, you know, really reminds me of how good God is. When we domesticate things, certain types of traits can show up. So we can, we can breed for meat. They used to breed for kind of a combination, including a draft animal that would carry the plow along, you know, hmm. and we can breed for these different things that are useful to us as humans, which really tells me in God designed creatures for to change in ways that would benefit us. And you think about chickens, uh, you can raise them for meat, you can raise them for eggs, um, and ducks the same way. So there's certain types of variation that God has designed in there to be able to arise that uh, benefit mankind. And that's in domestic breeds. <laughs> and that's all still one species, no. right? The cattle and the yes. chickens. Okay. Yes, they used to. They used to have the Indian cattle, the ones with the humps on the back oh, that yeah. lived in the wire. That used to be a separate species when I was going to school, but now they can interbreed with our regular um, taurine cattle, which are your, you know, your dairy cattle and your beef cattle. They can interbreed, so they're usually considered separate subspecies. Hmm. That's an amazing amount of variability that you have there. You know, even within a single species, and then of course. You know, new species can arise within within baramins. That that term baramin, um, ju just explain that for for our listeners. Um, where where does that term come from? What does it mean? Okay, in Hebrew, the word for create is bara, and then mean is the word that is used for kind. And so hmm. that was put together. Bara mean, baramin, uh, and then ology is the study of. So. Yeah. Um, that's how it comes up with created kinds, create and the word kind just sort of stuffed together in perhaps not a natural way for someone who knows Hebrew, but you know. <laughs> yeah. 
it's sure. it's kind of stuck, hasn't it? Oh, <laughs> it has, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was coined originally, I th- I think, in 1941 by um, the biologist Frank Marsh. Yeah. And you know, whatever its merits as a as a as a sort of authentic Hebrew phrase, um, <laughs> you know, the, the way that we've sort of put those words together in this. Uh, sort of neologism that we now have um it's it's kind of stuck so you know baramin or baramin is uh, you, you know what what we have and it, it's it's just uh, yeah technical term for for the created kind isn't it um now ha- one of the things that i i think is you know i i want our listeners to understand is why baraminology is so important to the to the creationist model because I, th- I really do think that it is um so, Gene, just help us to understand, you know, what kinds of questions can the study of the created kinds help us to answer that are going to help us to develop the, the broader creationist model? So the first thing we're doing is identifying what's related, and that's hmm. extremely helpful. Um, once we know what's related, we can look at the variability in it. For example, if you looked at dog breeds, you can see certain color patterns. You can see um, certain changes in the muzzle shape uh, and, and in length of limbs and in other things. So there's certain types of changes that are differences that we see. Um, it's kind of a little awkward because some of it was created and some of it developed and it's quite a bit of work to tease that out, what's created, what's developed. And one of the reasons I was interested in genetics is because sometimes you can kind of tell um, of how the change comes comes about. For example, um, all black uh, cattle, say, or pigs, um, you find that in one particular gene, there's a change that makes it so this particular protein's always produced and there's no control over it anymore. It's like, well, then that's a mutation. That's something that arose later. Um, one of the things that I think is important, and even from a medical standpoint, is trying to figure out how God designed creatures to change, because we may find that some of the diseases we deal with were part of, for example, a part of something in the design where there was an attempt to design, an attempt to adapt, I mean, attempt to adapt to a new situation. And so maybe we're putting a stress on an organism and it's attempting to adapt and we're ending up with a problem that's a disease problem. And so if we understand how things tend to change genetically, then you know it may really help us understand how to handle certain diseases. Hmm. And then if we want to try to trace a natural history of how organisms diversified from, you know, after being on the ark, you know, hmm. that's been attempted as well. Uh, mm. So we have a natural history and with natural histories, you have to be a little cautious. If no one saw it, you, you, don't, you don't take it as, you know, the word of God, but it helps us understand how things may have happened and we can yeah. make more sense of things. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned there the, the kinds that were on the ark and then how they've diversified since, you know, the, the, the end of the flood when they came off the ark. I think you were involved uh, with the ark encounter um uh, that, that's run by answers in genesis i think you did some some work to try and enumerate the the created kinds that would have been on the ark could, could you tell us a bit about the work that you did there yeah i looked at mammals and i looked at birds 
And Tom Hennigan did um, some work with reptiles and amphibians. And I think Marcus Ross even looked at some fossils. Um, that was very interesting because I found out that what I was taught in high school about taxonomy was an idealistic idea that wasn't consistent with reality. And yeah. so everyone wants a species to be exactly something and it never changes. And it's like, since I left high school, the scientific names on a whole bunch of things have changed. And so, and, and why is that? Why would you have, it's, why is it so difficult to define species and have them stay in their spot? <laughs> because as a birder, you know, I hear about, oh, well, we've just combined these two species together because we found out there's a lot of hybridization up north, you know, in this species. Or, or we've divided these two species because they seem into two species, one species into two, because, you know, just because of their behavior. And so why do you have that kind of plasticity? Well, you know, if things only change really slowly over long periods of time, maybe you wouldn't have that. But in a creation model where you take the Bible's history as reality, it's like, oh, God created things to reproduce and fill the earth and be able to change so they could. And so that type of plasticity in the species definition actually makes sense within a biblical worldview. And some people get very upset about that because in high school we were taught how rigid it was. And well, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of people come away from the way just the way we teach science. People come away with the idea that science is knowledge, right? And that science is the final word on things. And then, as you say, you find out that science is a lot messier than what what you learned in high school. And I think some people resent that kind of that somehow, well, science really doesn't know anything, but really that progression, that refinement is sort of what science does, right? I mean, that we're learning new things as creation scientists and we're changing what we think too. So that's actually, that's kind of a sign that science is doing what it's supposed to do. Although I admit, I find it kind of annoying that we change names from time to time. Just, just pick a name and... <laughs> I hope they always keep T-Rex because people love T-Rex. And so we have to have that one. But, uh, but you yeah, know what they I did with that. the Brontosaurus? That one was my favorite. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, here's, a, here's a question. I, I, I don't know where we go with this, but Gene, is, is an arc kind the same as a created kind or are they different concepts? Um, I had always assumed they were the same. And if you look at a lot of my writing, I basically assumed they're identical. Whatever God created, you know, was on the ark. The problem is, is that Hebrew language describes what's going on, but it's not a taxonomy. And so just like, you know, I can have different kinds of writing utensils. I can have different kinds of this. I can, and the word kind really depends on the context. I use it and it's really no different in Hebrew. Yeah. So the kinds that God created had like maybe a thousand years to um, reproduce and diversify and whatever. And then when God brought various kinds, they would be recognized as distinct kinds to Noah, but that doesn't mean they'd look like they looked to Adam. So for any particular created kind, you could potentially have 
more than one kind on the ark, which affects the, affects the amount of diversity that was available for then after the flood, being able to uh, diversify and fill the earth or reproduce and fill the earth, adapt mm. and stuff. So I didn't like that conclusion and I will blame Todd for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because I think he challenged me once and I think I remember responding, yeah, I don't want to think about that. So I don't then either. I went off and I thought about that and I said, you know what? Yeah. I need to call, you know, I need to hold myself accountable here. So no, they wouldn't necessarily be identical. There's times where they could be and there's other times. Yeah or they probably are not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's important. I, mm. And and on the on the side of they're the same, right? Created kind is an art kind. Mm. Uh you have just the language the word used, right? So we don't see that word mean in Hebrew very often in in the Old Testament. It occurs in the list of of kosher foods uh in the Pentateuch. It occurs in the creation account and it occurs and the flood account, right? And so you sort of get the sense if it's in creation and then it's referred to again in the flood, then it must be must be the same category, right? But maybe not, right? And so But it was the it was the use in the in Leviticus and Deuteronomy mm -hmm. that really made me see, oh, wait a minute, they're just using it like the word kind, yeah. like I do, which is so context dependent. Yep. And yeah. And so um, it doesn't make sense in the rigid taxonomic, uh, the word doesn't work in a rigid taxonomic sense when you go to yeah. Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Yeah. And I think I published that in um, the Journal of Creation uh, within the last mm. year or so. I had mm. a few Hebrew scholars go look it over for me, so I didn't you know, <laughs> watch that part. But uh, I mean, I'm interested in Hebrew and I study Hebrew, but... Uh, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know my limitations. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically baromenology can help us to answer all kinds of interesting questions, not not only about, you know, how many animals God might have originally made or how many were, were on the ark and, you know, the patterns of diversification within the kinds. Um, th there's also the, the question of the origin of natural evils. So things like predators and parasites and pathogens. And I think if we if we get a handle on, you know, what are the boundaries of, of the created groups, then perhaps that gives us some clues as to um, the origin of those kinds of biological phenomena. C could you perhaps give us some examples, Gene, where, where the, you know, we can start to work out how these things arose uh, based on what we think the created kinds are. The only thing I've really looked at was shrew venom. I looked at it a number mm. of years ago and it does look like they take molecules that existed before and you do things like you lose your ability to control them and you express them in places maybe they weren't expressed before or whatever. Um, that has been done, I know, in with uh, insects and things like that. I've seen work, uh, it wasn't mine. Um, where they looked at that and they say, you know, it looks like you only have some individuals that have this and it's not the whole group. So it really makes sense that it arose after the fall. 
Um, right. So there's been a little bit of work on that. I'm probably I'm not as informed as I should be about it. Could we talk uh, a little more about shrew venom? I don't know that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that our listeners are really all that familiar with the idea that shrews have venom. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm not a biologist, and I had no idea that tree shrews <laughs> were venomous. I would so have to go is... back and reread my article. <laughs> I published it probably a decade ago. Um, they basically found uh, it, it's kind of an enzyme, I think, uh, that you lose. It, it looks like it developed, even the evolutionists think, it looks like it developed from a creature that did not have venom by various relatively um, understandable processes. Mm. And uh, yeah, watch out what you do with shrews. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and these you're talking so, about the little mouse like creatures right the little yeah. fuzzy little cute guys that those that was, those that was in a journal of creation article okay uh well, we're quite gonna, a while ago so if you we are definitely going to link to that in our show notes because people are going to okay. want to know more about yeah. shrew venom <laughs> so I, I i guess you know what what we're saying here is that if if we know what the created kind is and we find that certain members of that group certain species within that created kind have particular adaptations that are kind of natural evils whether that's uh, an adaptation for uh, carnivory or you know a certain type of venom or you know so, something of that kind but other members of the group don't have it then presumably those are things that we can perhaps begin to understand how those things developed yeah. subsequent to creation. Right. Um, yeah. and, and it doesn't just apply to natural evils, of course. It applies to other kinds of adaptations as well. So it, it, Yeah, it, it very much applies to adaptation, yes. Yeah. I, I remember when I looked at uh, woodpeckers, for example, um, I, I did a baromenology study and found that essentially all the members of the woodpecker family, the broader woodpecker family, are members of the same created kind but not all of them have the um the sort of typical adaptations that we associate with your more typical um, woodpecker so not all of them had the the tough bill or the feet that were designed for grasping on on trees and uh the uh, shock absorbers you know that help help the woodpecker you know when it's hammering into trees some members of the woodpecker group did not have all of those adaptations. And so presumably they arose by some kind of process of mediated design since the time of creation. So you're, well, yeah, you're not that's, saying that's not design, right? You're still thinking that's designed. Sure. Okay. But it's, but it, but perhaps it's a design that's latent and unexpressed in the woodpecker kind, but becomes expressed at some later point in uh, biblical history. Um, so, you know, how, how might that work, Gene? You know, the, this idea of sort of mediated design, that, that God has sort of designed these adaptations, but perhaps they're not fully expressed in the original ancestral organism. Okay, so I haven't been using that terminology once, and one of our, our, our issues here is which is ancestral? Is it mm. the complex phenotype with all that extra stuff is that the ancestral one yeah. and the others are from loss generally speaking i tend to favor just because of the, what i've seen usually you start with complexity and you show it as loss yeah. so for example and maybe this would fit your mediated design i've looked at high altitude adaptation 
And hemoglobin is an important molecule. In fact, there's no one size fits all for hemoglobin. And in humans, I think we have three different ones depending on the stage of development. I think there's two that are in utero and then one after birth. And it's because the environment is different and that hemoglobin molecule needs to hang on to the oxygen with a different degree of tightness. So mm. what you find, not so much in humans, but in uh, many mammals and birds, is that that hemoglobin molecule was made in such a way that it can be changed. And it can be changed so it either hangs onto the oxygen more or less tightly. And you remember, it needs to hang onto the oxygen to take it from the lungs to where it needs to be delivered in the tissue, but it's got to let go at the tissue or you're not going to have the oxygen. Okay. So it's quite a complex process And the the design of the hemoglobin molecule allows at least in, in various birds and in mammals, uh, the ability for it to change. And so I'm not sure if that's quite what you mean by mediated design, but there is design that allows for future adaptation. Yeah. No doubt, no doubt. Mm. Um, and it, but whether or not it looks like uh, on a molecular level, there's nothing that looks like it's increasing complexity with the high altitude adaptation. It's just taking what's there and it's kind of switching it. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, instead of this on the dial, we want to make it this on the dial so that the hemoglobin will hang on to the oxygen differently. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like more information on sponsorship opportunities, or maybe you'd like to have a product or a book reviewed or discussed on our podcast, please contact us at podcast at corsi.org. That's podcast at corsi.org. If you would like more information about what we discussed today, be sure to check out our show notes at corsi.org slash podcast. That's corsi.org slash podcast. One of the other things that I suppose, um, you know, barominology is going to help us uh, sort of address as creationists are bigger design patterns. Um, because when we look at the biological world, we we know that there are created kinds, but those created kinds also have similarities. So there are things that we call mammals that have certain mm -hmm. characteristics in common. So there's some kind of supra-baraminic pattern, isn't there, above the level of the baramin? And trying to understand that and what that, that means, um, you know, is another whole sort of area of research. And, and getting a handle on the clustering of the created kinds might help us to work out what that bigger design pattern is. Yeah, perhaps. Now, I hate to be a dissident, but uh -oh. I probably am. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, as human beings, we naturally group things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we yeah. do. But there's times where there's more than one way to group things. And that's a real problem for me because when I try to group things on my computer, who knows where it is, you know? And sometimes I do well and I can find things again. And sometimes I it's like, oh, I didn't know I put that there. <laughs> so my question is, I is are the groupings above the level of the kind really concrete and consistent throughout? I'm not convinced that's a yes. Okay. Um, I think there may be more than one way you can group things. I mean, in the Bible, mm -hmm. they use three categories of land animals, and we don't usually use those categories in our culture. Um, 
So I am not convinced there's one right way above the level of the kind, but there's definitely ways that you can group. Um, and I think that is important. I think it's important to, yeah. for us to look at that and, and, and see what works. Cause I know sometimes that's another place in taxonomy where there's all this, oh, it wasn't what I grew up with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but I think that's, yeah. I think that's really important that what you said about the Bible and it's, it's a different way of, of grouping things because yeah if you if you look into the literature enough you're eventually going to hit on some skeptic scoffing at the bible for calling a bat a bird so yeah. the the bible lists uh, <laughs> a bat among this list of birds and so well obviously that's stupid and wrong and how dumb is the bible but that's the, the the bird term there is is a term for flying things, right? Yeah. So yeah. things that yeah. fly is yeah. what the Bible counts as that category. It's not what we think of as feathered creatures with certain anatomical attributes and beaks and so forth. It's it's uh it's flyers and and so we're sort of imposing on the scripture this notion of right and wrong from our modern scientific western mindset which is not how the bible is treating things what was interesting we talked about that i did that study to see what mammals were on the ark one of the groups in genesis one was creatures that crawl along the ground mm -hmm. now that is mm -hmm. not limited to mammals there are, you know lizards and things like that would be included in that group but even in mammals it's like Man, I never knew there were so many mammals that just sort of creep along the ground. Yeah. I think I get why they they classified things that way. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, that there are multiple ways to to basically classify things. And there, there there may not be one single sort of nested hierarchy, one unique yeah. nested hierarchy, but you know, multiple conflicting yeah. ways of of classifying and organizing things. And well, I think as we as, as we study that, that's going to give us some insights, isn't it, into into the overall design pattern and what God's trying to communicate to us through that. Yeah, yeah, we should see some good patterns. Even below yeah. what we think is the level of the kind, it seems like it it isn't this nice, real neat branch going out. It's kind of, well, mm -hmm. you have hybridization and, and all that. Yeah. So biology, you know, it's not like, it's not like your ideal gas laws. It just is <laughs> no. really complex, no. but it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, well, that kind of brings us on to um, perhaps something of the methodology of, of, of identifying the, the created kinds. Um you know, I'm sure, you know, many of our listeners are going to want to know, how do we do this? You know, what's what's the kind of process? How, how do you go about determining what species belong in a particular created kinds and which belong to different created kinds? So I wonder if you could just sort of tell us about some of the methods that are there available for us in the toolkit that will help us to answer those kinds of questions. Okay, so the gold standard or ideal is if you get if you get these two different species that are able to reproduce together and produce offspring, you know, like a dog and wolf, they're part of the same created kind. And in fact, most of that family, um, Canidae, you can connect together um, through hybrid data. And then if you have hybrids that connect a lot of a group, 
often where the real obvious grouping is, you assume that whole group is. So we don't have data for all the foxes. I think there's only one, one or two foxes that we have data that kind of connects them with the dogs. But because they're all in that same group, we'd say, okay, all of Canidae, all of your dogs and foxes and wolves and those are probably a created kind. So there's some inference in there. And that's in ideal when it exists, but it often doesn't. So, well, we think, well, what other ways can we try to do this? And we could like use math. Isn't math fun? Can't we use math in science? <laughs> we'll use statistical barominology. And I first was introduced to that at a, I think it was back when it was the biology study group at, a, at one of the meetings. And uh, Todd had that nice little booklet that I could go through and, and talked all about the methods for trying to group things. And, and uh, that now at the CRS, I'm working with a, an author that is looking at molecular data, which molecular data was that? Well, it's the sequence in the genes or the, the sequence in the proteins. He's looking at that. But the one thing I want to say, sometimes people think that if you take uh, if you take math and apply it to science, you suddenly get the right answer, this <laughs> answer, you know, and it's like, uh, no, the only problem is you always, always, always have to make some kind of assumptions. And it's usually not yeah. just one assumption. You've got multiple assumptions. Yeah. So for example, when, uh, when Todd uses the, the, it to, on molecular, on, on morphological data sets, which is where you measure things in a living organism or on the bones or whatever, is that really taking a holistic look at things? Well, sometimes it may be, and sometimes Maybe uh, not. it might be quite a few times. Where it Maybe might not. Be. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, and, and what are we looking for? How, how did Adam recognize different kinds? And, and so, and even, and you think, well, we can just use the genetic code that, I mean, that's holistic. How could you be more holistic? And yet we find that there's a lot we are not understanding. And there's times we get results that it's like, no, why did that thing end up not in the group, not in the cluster, yeah. it's beside it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think we have a long way to go that it, none of the statistical tests are magic wands that automatically give us the right answer but they're important tools. Yep. We need to have tools and we need to use those tools. And if people don't like the results, okay, they don't like the results, but we need to be using the tools. We need to understand our tools better. We need to understand how we can collect data ourselves. Um, we need to make sure the, the codes we're using to extract data from the databases that have the, uh, the DNA information are really doing what we think they're doing. There's just an awful lot there. So statistical barominology is extremely important. Never bet your farm on the <laughs> results of any of them. <laughs> but as we continue to look at this and, and find similarities, it's like, wow, these consistently grouped together. We've done tests after, you know, we've looked at yeah. all sorts of different things and they're yep. consistently grouping together. And you know what? We have someone who, who likes anatomy and they go out and they describe it. And when they describe it, they can find that this is a clear group, okay? Mm -hmm. um, then that, that builds our confidence that, yeah, okay, I think we're finding something there. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a, a second method. Um, 
and that's pretty broad because there's a lot of basically you're looking for groups you're trying to group things that's the basis of all statistical verminology i think that's really important the idea that math does not make biology i don't know right or objective or something like that i think sometimes people who are in physics or chemistry or astronomy where you have these nice formulas <laughs> that are that fit your data perfectly and beautifully and you and 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 they come to biology and it's it's just uh, orders of magnitude more complex with biology yeah. and so the data tend to be mushy and messy and hard to get your math around and so it's not like you say it's not a test it doesn't give you the right answer uh it might give you an answer that might not be right and you might find later on that yeah yeah well we learn better and now we know and our data is cleaner and our and our methods are better and so we change our minds and and I think that's I think that's important for people to understand. Science with math, science plus math is not is not the word of God. <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah. it's just science plus math. Yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we have to be careful as well about data set selection because by and large we're not collecting our own data. We're we're using data sets that are available in the literature that have actually been constructed often to answer different kinds of questions. Yeah. yeah. And those data sets, if we're not careful, if we're not familiar with the group, uh, the results can lead us astray. I think we covered that with uh, Matt McLean when he was talking about pterosaur barominology and how he, he got some very strange results. And that was partly because of the nature of the data sets he was using. But you know, because he was familiar enough with the fossil group, he understood there was something not quite right you know, with these results and was able to sort of get to the bottom of that. Um, so we have to be careful, don't we, about uh, data selection, about using the methods appropriately and recognizing that these are all um, a kind of process of successive approximation. They're not a magic bullet that's just going to give us the right answer, you know, there and then. We, we we need to look at lots of different types of data. And when when we get lots of different lines of evidence that seem to be converging on the same answer then that can increase our confidence that you know what we're seeing is real mm. um that that's very helpful and i i do remember as well you know in some of the early days of barominology there were uh, i remember a couple of papers that were published by kurt wise um that listed a whole load of possible criteria that could be applied in barominology and actually most of them these days are not being sort of used very often Perhaps we need to go back and look at that literature again, yeah. and um, and dis- rediscover some of the some of the criteria that perhaps we're sort of neglecting and overlooking these days as well to to supplement the the work that we're doing. Will that go in the show notes? <laughs> yes, it will. Yes, yes, we we certainly will. Yeah, we will we'll put, put that, that in the, in the show, show notes. notes. <laughs> and one yeah, other comment, yeah. though, I think we have sure. to look at our own biases. Mm-hmm. I was not yeah. really happy when I found out that the created kind and the art kind weren't necessarily identical because I had been using that to try to come to conclusions. I thought, oh, this is great. And I think that a lot of times we're used to thinking of things as grouping in a particular way. And while we we want to be cautious, we always need to be able to continue to question our own assumptions. It's like, is that really from scripture? Or am I hanging on to something I learned in high school that wasn't even consistent with reality? And 
So, you know, God's God, he knows everything. We don't have to try to take over his job, but right. we're supposed to be learning. That's a good thing. So I don't know. There, there, God, if God doesn't use science, God uses science to humble me. If God doesn't use science to humble somebody, they're not much of a scientist. That's true. Because biology in particular should humble you on a reasonably regular basis. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's yeah. excellent. Um, one other area that I know you've you've published in uh, Gene and and have given a lot of thought to is uh, mechanisms of diversification. So we think that you know when the animals came off the ark that there was uh, this period when they underwent uh, diversification, refilled the earth, repopulated the earth. Um, filled the vacant niches that were that were left after the flood. Um, what were some of the mechanisms that were involved in that process of diversification, and how are they different from sort of standard neo-Darwinian mechanisms that perhaps you know we're a bit more familiar with from the literature? And perhaps you ought to tell us what those standard neo-Darwinian mechanisms are as well. <laughs> All right, um, the best way to approach this. Okay, in Darwin's time, he said variation was pretty much random. The other thing that was implied that I'm not sure if he stated is any variation is possible. As a veterinarian, I look at that and say, uh-uh, you gotta kill your animal, you just can't do certain things, or you might have a dead animal and it will not reproduce and you're dead end. Uh, when neo-Darwinism uh, came about, and I think that what was 1940s, I guess, somewhere in there, um, there were basically two mechanisms. Mutation was said to be random. So they took that randomness and it now was mutation that was random. And then natural selection was the stuff that was the thing that picked, that pulled out what was good. So you're randomly generating things. So the whole basis is this randomness. And I'm over there looking at that. It's like, nah, you know, this is not right. Things adapt way too quickly. I mean, you can't wait around for like a uh, hundred years. You're gonna die if you don't adapt. So there's there's several things that God did. One, there's a physiologic adaptation, which is very familiar to me in my field. You know, you go to a high altitude. If I go to Quito, Ecuador, within uh, well, at first, I'm breathing faster and my heart is going faster. Why? Because there's a lack of oxygen at that high altitude but that doesn't keep up and in within two weeks if i stay there that long i have new red blood cells uh, so there's all these changes one after another so that i can adapt now if you adapt like that then how is natural selection going to help going to really distinguish between that and a, a new mutation that helps you adapt i mean because you're both adapted so it just didn't make any sense that mutation was random and that natural selection was really the major player that was um, causing it to, you know, come about and be that whatever that trait was to be, you know, found throughout the population of organisms. Um, there are a whole slew of ways that things can change genetically. Transposable elements. I know Todd's written on that and some others, uh, Peter Borger's written on that. I'm not as familiar with that. That's not really as much what I looked into. There's um, more point mutations in the taking a piece out or putting a piece in. They're called indels. So I put a little, I've put some sequences of DNA in, 
or I pull some out. And I've looked more at that. Um, so those are things, there's just really a whole variety of ways that things can change genetically. And uh, you can have chromosome numbers that change. Although I don't know what that does to the phenotype yet, because you can, apparently one in a thousand humans does not have our standard number of chromosomes. <laughs> we just don't know because we didn't check. And, and they don't look any different, <laughs> just yeah. as human. So, because chromosomes can kind of fuse together or sometimes they can break apart. So there's an awful lot that goes on as far as mechanisms of change. A recent uh, article looked at Arabidopsis, the little weed, and found that, hey, guess what? Mutations aren't random with respect to their outcome. They occur a lot less commonly in places they can do harm. And they're a lot more common in places they can do good. And so that has really been encouraging to me because I've been saying that for years, that that has to be the case or we can't explain what's going on. Um, and so we find that the mechanisms that neo-Darwinists have proposed are insufficient, even in the creation model, to account for variation. Now, there's some question, was, was that, that adaptation uh, dramatic after the flood? Sure, because when new areas opened up for organisms to go and settle. Is that different from what we see today? I don't know. I think to some degree that if you adapt to a certain situation, it may limit your ability to adapt in the future. But I still see that life is able to go into new situations and go colonize. Mm -hmm. And so interesting questions. There's a lot we don't know about the specifics. Mm. Mm. I'm fascinated by this idea of, you know, but potentially purposeful chromosome rearrangements. And the, the fact that you get such dramatic uh, variation in say chromosome numbers within the horse family or whatever um it just as a i'm a non-biologist and it just seems incredible to me that you can get that kind of variability without it being catastrophic to the organism you know that you can actually have those dramatic changes in chromosome number um yeah that, i just find that completely remarkable which is what suggests to me this is not complete this is not just an accident there are mechanisms mm. involved to enable that to be able to occur but i don't know what it does mm. i mean besides change mm. the chromosome number mm. <laughs> and todd um you know gene touched briefly there on this idea of transposable elements um I, I guess some of our listeners won't know what we mean by that so ju ju just tell us what is a transposable <laughs> element and what role might they have played in post-flood diversification yeah that's a that's a you know, what is it um <laughs> So yeah, so what is a, what is a transposable element? Um, it's basically a very small piece of DNA. Um, so if you think of a of a of a chromosome, the longest human chromosome is two hundred and fifty million nucleotides. You don't even need to know what a nucleotide is, but it's two hundred fifty million nucleotides. That's really big. Um, a transposable element might be might be a 10,000 nucleotides, it might be 100 nucleotides. They can be very, very small compared to the larger chromosome. They are capable of moving or sometimes replicating and moving. And so you can increase the number of these things in your genome and they can move around to different spots. Uh, and it's been known for a while that this is not a random movement thing. 
Uh, so they're not they're not just going willy nilly anywhere, uh, but they can alter gene and gene in terms of genetics, right? G gene regulation, <laughs> when genes come on and when genes go off and how loud they are and how soft they are and that sort of thing. Um, but like, but like Gene, the other Gene was saying, uh, there is this oddness sometimes because what I appreciate about Gene's work is she's really, you know, trying to nail down what is the relationship between an organism's traits and an organism's genetics. Um, and it's easy to go to a created kind and say, okay, well, the, the, the canids, the dogs, the foxes, the wolves, and so forth. These are all a single created kind. And then you can compare their genes and you can see, wow, look at all these differences. Look at their chromosome numbers are different and all these other interesting differences. But we don't really know what that means for the actual visible diversity of, of dogs. So um, what Jean's been doing is really cool because she's looking at things like, all right, well, let's talk about what color they are and what kind of fur they have. And, and like you say, uh, altitude adaptations. Can we see what makes this one... Uh, fit for high altitude and what makes uh, another member of creative kind fit for lower altitude and so forth. Um, that's really important work. That's different from just the sort of, let's look at gen genomes and see how different they are, which is an important question, but it's not quite getting at that whole, you know, what's the relationship between this aspect of the organism, the genetics and what I see myself and observe. Mm. So those are, those are really interesting kinds of questions. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll put links to Gene's papers on some of these topics in the show notes. We'll, de definitely. we'll definitely do that so that people can can, can take a look at those. Um, one other sort of area that I wondered if you'd talk about, Gene, is um, the eKinds initiative um, that has been um, established, funded by the Creation Research Society. Um, I, I'm a member of the society and I, I get the journal and I'm seeing a whole series of papers that are coming out under under this uh, initiative. And in particular, uh, I've seen a number of papers that you uh, have co-written with uh, your colleague, the, the late John Alquist. And I just wonder if you could just tell us about the eKinds initiative and particularly about that collaboration, because... Um, John was a very well-known bird taxonomist. And so that must have been a really interesting opportunity to, to work with him. Yes, indeed. Okay, so the eKinds project stands for Examination of Kinds in Natural Diversification and Speciation. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't know when they came up with that. So. <laughs> Okay, so, um, so you know, we're just looking at how, uh, we're looking at the types of questions that we've been talking about all along. But what I wanted to do, I sort of felt all alone. It's like, well, I'm asking these questions. I want to do something to encourage other researchers to be able to, you know, ask similar types of questions and re receive uh, some degree of funding. Uh, right now, the eKinds project tends to pay uh, by the paper yeah, rather than by the hour. But anyhow, so we have several things that have gone on, maybe half a dozen articles, uh, most of them co-authored, which is very good. The biggest, one of the biggest disappointments in creation circles is all these single authored papers. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, 
why are the creationists doing that when they have you know all the teachings of the gospel and why are the secular guys collaborating when they're just the secular guys so that aspect has been really good um our intent is to draw in more researchers so if there's people who have the background to do research in some of the types of questions we're interested in um i hope that they would uh contact the creation research society or me um personally because I'm involved in that. So, and, and that we can increase the amount of Ekind's output. John Alquist was a very interesting individual. So if you've heard about the 2% difference between humans and apes, well, what John told me is basically they couldn't decide if gorillas more, were more similar to humans or if chimps were more similar to humans. And he and Charles Sibley were doing these DNA-DNA hybridization techniques, which basically meant they'd take pieces of DNA, they kind of unzip them, and then you put DNA from two different organisms together and see how well they zipped back up, okay? And if they zipped back up really well, they were closely related. And if they didn't do so well, they were, okay. And they, they used that in their taxonomy. So. So they decided to go ahead and check the, you know, even though they were ornithologists and just looking at birds, they decided to check the gorilla, you know, the chimp and the human. And it was, and that was, a, oh, it's the chimp that's more similar. And, uh, and it was based on their stuff. But with the DNA, DNA hybridization, uh, John explained that technology uh, to me. In fact, he may have explained it in one of our papers. I can't remember. <clears throat> but they couldn't use all the DNA. I mean, they can't just unzip the whole thing. They were using segments of it and they couldn't use the part that was real repetitive. So they were only using select portions of it. So when you get the 2% figure, it's very interesting that if you compare similar parts of humans and chimps that were similar. You know, if you, but if you want to compare other parts, maybe not so much. Okay, yeah. so it, he, he was very entertaining. Um, most of the co-author articles he wrote the predominant amount of I just had to smooth it out so we had a good introduction and good smooth logical flow to it um, he couldn't quite get that all by himself um, it basically when I met him I realized that he was older and his health was not that great and that time would be limited so I put aside some other things that I was kind of interested in and decided to go ahead and invest in my relationship with him and work on getting those papers done. And I think we put out five papers together. Three were on the landfall, a series of three, and then two more. And I am very thankful that I did that because I learned so much just working with him. Mm -hmm. It gave him an ability to contribute, which meant so much to him because basically he was not following the Lord for most of his career until, um, and then he came back to the Lord. He had been taught about the Lord as a child and then he came back to the Lord and he wanted that birds to really make a difference in creation science. And so it was really nice to be able to work with him and help him get those papers published. That was, that was special. But I think that that's something we need to do a lot more of. We Sometimes we have our own interests and that's, that's good, but there needs to be ways we can collaborate. And I think I'd like to see that increase. Yeah, mm, definitely. That's great. I mean, you know, I'm so pleased that you were able to 
put aside that time to, to work with him. And, you know, um, yeah, what a blessing to ha have those papers for, from him in, in those latter sort of years of his life. That, that's really great. Um, one of the uh, subjects that I know you wrote about with him was about this um, concept of the founder effect and, you know, the, its potential role in promoting post-flood diversity. Um, could, could you just tell us what the founder effect is and, you know, what, what you were doing in those papers? Okay, so if you have uh, only a few individuals or sometimes, uh, like in some insects, a pregnant female uh, land in a new area where there's no other of that species around, um, the genetic makeup of that of the individual or individuals that started this population is going to have an impact on uh, what you see there. Hmm. The, one of the problems is because evolutionists are trying to make everything random and then only natural selection brings things out, they often don't account for things like migration and hybridization, or they haven't in the past. I think they're, they're trying to do better now or, uh, or the founder effect. Now, after the flood, you're going to have a lot of founder effect because you have these organisms that are starting from one place and filling, they're going every direction and they're filling new environments that are just beginning to develop. You're going to have a lot of that. The other thing is, is if the founder effect is not accidental, which is the way it's always been taught for um, evolutionists, the founder effect, you have traits that have nothing to do with adaptation. Well, if they accidentally got there and they didn't choose to go there, that makes sense. But you have a lot of animals that can choose to go places. And if they chose to go there and they stayed because they liked it, they probably have traits suitable to that environment. And you, it's not a random thing. And that's gonna look to the evolutionists like natural selection, but that's not what's going on. You have the organism selecting their environment. And so basically when there was a book um, that talked about how there was very little evidence of the founder effect in birds. And one of my reviewers said, please explain why you're coming up with a different conclusion. And the, my conclusion was different because the founder effect is not automatically random with respect, you know, the traits in the environment are not random. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that has been underestimated. Uh, not every organism can choose where it lands, but a lot can. And that's been very underestimated because it's very complex to deal with. And how do you model that mathematically? I don't know that you can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's very helpful. It's Gene, it's been great to you know, talk to you and to, to hear about your research and for you to help us to understand some of the um, areas of uh, baromenology research that you've been involved in. Um, what encouragements could you give to perhaps younger people who are training in biology and want to contribute in the future? What are the opportunities that are open for them in creationism? There's lots of opportunities. However, my first suggestion is be in God's word and grow in your relationship with him. We need scientists who love God with all their heart and are listening to him and are obedient to him because as we, as we walk in that, God will guide us into the things we need to know. There are tremendous opportunities open. Uh, 
If your interest is in genetics, there's a lot of genetics questions. If you say, ah, genetics is too much for me, but I love to study anatomy. There are plenty of things um, that one can look at anatomically as well that deal with this issue of created kinds. Um, we need people who are able to think outside the box and people who are able to recognize their assumptions. It's like, okay, why did I think that? Why did I, why do I believe this? Is it coming from scripture or is it coming from somewhere else? And so I was trained that mutations were just accidents. And as a veterinarian, I saw, you know, mutations that cause disease. So that is where I started until I started getting into it. And it's like, wait a minute, there's all these mutations that we never even see that, that are adaptive. Okay, my view needs to change. So don't let that frustrate you. Um, when I found out there was a pseudogene, a human pseudogene that actually coded for a protein, I felt so humbled for like a whole week. It's like, <laughs> I thought we understood this. <laughs> What's going on? Um, don't be afraid to feel stupid. If you don't ever feel stupid, you aren't really learning, okay? Don't be afraid to feel stupid. It's good for you. It helps humble you. It reminds you to rely on God. And it helps you ask the questions you need to be asking to really find out what's going on. So those are some of the, there's, there's plenty of opportunities. If you're fascinated, go ahead and have fun and study. Uh, one of the things I like doing is birding. I go out and I record the birds because I have just learned a lot about taxonomy. I've learned a lot about the birds. I've enjoyed watching God's creatures and, you know, things like simple things like that. That's great. And you mentioned earlier about the importance of collaboration and you know doing science as community and that's certainly a biblical principle uh and besides the origins conference which is the annual meeting of the creation biology and creation geology societies um the creation research society also has an annual conference yes um and that's a place where you know students and others other scholars could come together um, meet with other creationist researchers um, and get involved in those kinds of collaborations. So tell, tell us about the CRS conference, Jean. Yeah, that we, we encourage our members to go ahead and write an abstract and give presentations. Uh, there's supposed to be works in progress. So we, we publish the abstracts, but there's not, but a lot of these, both types of conferences, it's who you meet and you get to talk to mm. people and you find someone else that is kind of interested in what you're interested in. And those relationships really help strengthen a person as they want to go forward in research. When I first started researching, I, I felt all alone. And, 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 you know, sometimes you're so excited about your research, you're kind of way up here. And then all of a sudden it's like, no one's going to care. And I go, boom. And so emotionally, it was like this boom, slam on the ceiling, boom, slam on the floor. And I never expected that because I don't think of myself as a, I, you know, I'm a person who can get excited, but I don't think of myself as a particularly emotional person. I tend to you know, take things in stride pretty well, but having the fellowship, having other people, having people that disagree with you is your best, your best friendship. Find those people that's like, I don't think it's right. I don't agree with you. 
and develop that relationship with them and understand why they're thinking that. Okay. And I have, I've had to do this with a friend of mine who uh, I met at the uh, Creation Biology Society. Um, it, he and I think so different. And it's like, I think we need to have a Zoom call and see if we can discuss it. And we did. Why are you thinking that? What are you seeing that makes you think that way? It was a very good talk. And I'm not sure we really agree on anything, but we understand each other better. And those types of relationships, God's going to demand of us if he's going to reveal truth to us and take us to where we need to go. So yeah, applying the Bible is like major. <laughs> yeah. Gene, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today and for, for being willing to talk to us. It, it's been fascinating and very, very helpful and insightful. Uh, Todd, I, I don't think we know what's coming up on the next episode. but I uh, don't think we do. No, but hopefully people will uh, join us uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, remember that all of our streaming platforms and the show notes, and you'll want to check out the show notes for this episode because there are going to be some interesting things to, to follow up uh, from our conversation. That's available at coresci.org forward slash podcast. That's C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G forward slash podcast. Uh, as always, we love to get your questions and comments, your feedback. Uh, you can email us at podcast at coresci.org. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, hit the notification bell, um, like and share our episodes, um, leave us a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to us on, uh, tell your friends about the podcast and help us to spread the word. And uh, we also, of course, rely on your donations, uh, both Biblical Creation Trust and Core Academy of Science, the two sponsors of the podcast, are uh, donation-driven ministries. Uh, Todd, how can people give to Core Academy of Science? They can check us out at coresci.org slash donate. And there you will find our, our address where you can mail a check or you can uh, contribute online via PayPal. Uh, so that is available at coresci.org slash donate. Okay, so go and check that out. And for Biblical Creation Trust, uh, we have a website, biblicalcreationtrust.org. And if you go to our website, there's a donate button on the home page. Uh, click on that and it will take you to a giving page and it lists all of the ways that you can give. Uh, you can make a direct bank transfer. You can give by PayPal. If you're in the UK, you can send us a check. All, all those kinds of things. All of the information is there on our website. And we do appreciate all of uh, those who support us very much. Well, that's it for this week, uh, for this uh, latest episode. I've really enjoyed today and we'll look forward to seeing you in a fortnight's time. Bye for now. See you later. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at coresci.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.